Welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. This is actually the first episode we've recorded since the podcast went live, so thanks to anybody out there that's listening, and I'm really happy to say that you can get the Tech Done Right podcast at techdoneright.io, and also at iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we're doing and you want to encourage us to continue, two great ways to help us out are to either follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right, or leave us a review on iTunes. Both of those really help us gauge interest and help new people find the podcast. Thanks. Today on Tech Done Right, we're talking about JavaScript both with and without frameworks. We have two panelists who work professionally on both the client and server side. Uh, first, we have Dave Copeland. Hello, I'm Dave Copeland, uh, also known as David Bryant Copeland, who's written a few books, one of which is uh, Rails, Angular, Postgres, and Bootstrap, which is about doing full-stack development uh, with Rails, and the second edition is coming out soon. I'm also DaveTron5000 on Twitter. Yeah, that is an admirably straightforward title. <laughs> yeah, it took a long time to get there. And we also have uh, Zach Briggs. Zach, you want to introduce yourself? Well, certainly. My name is Zach Briggs, the other Zach on Twitter, which is where I'm Posting most of my musings these days, I'm the JavaScript practice lead at TableXI. Recently, I've been most interested in finding out efficient ways to embed interactivity into websites that might not have a very large budget. And that's what I've been up to lately. Thanks, Noel. Okay, you're welcome. So I wanted to have you guys on together because Dave has written uh, this entire book. He's actually written it twice now about using Angular with a Rails backend and using Angular to do what eventually becomes a, a single-page site on the front end. And I know, Zach, you also have a lot of opinions about how to interact client-side and server-side logic. And I thought that the two of you might have interesting things to say to each other. So I want to start with... Um, there, there are now sort of, there are kind of two camps about how to combine a server side app and a client side app. Uh, one is kind of the way Basecamp and DHH has talked about sprinkles of JavaScript. Uh, in that case, the server side basically serves HTML to the client and the client manipulates the DOM either on its own or with a lightweight framework. Uh, and then in the other case, the server is sending JSON data, usually JSON to the client and the the client is manipulating the data uh, and is responsible for creating its own DOM elements. And that can be either a single page app and the server and client can be separate apps entirely. In what circumstances is one of those approaches recommended and what circumstances would you try a more complicated client side? Like, how do you think about those trade-offs? I came into the single page app world by necessity due to uh, terrible um, internet in our warehouses where I work. So we operate our own warehouses and we write software for them to, you know, pick orders basically. And the uh, internet was terrible. And the way the application worked that they used for picking, it was very much like classic rails, like submit a bunch of stuff, re-render an entire page every time the user does anything. And it was just awful. So I rewrote it in angular and it basically the bandwidth needed for the application to work properly was like way lower and it worked way better for the users. So it was actually like born out of necessity for me and it works great. I find there's often good sound technical reasons for a single page app. I worked at Splice, a music startup for a while. We had a music player that was persistent when somebody was browsing the site. Great reason for a single page app right there, right? But the way I look at single-page apps in general is uh, it is incumbent upon the the single-page app to prove itself. Yeah. 
And uh, I think a strong piece of evidence for that is if you look back at the history of the web, right, and think back to, say, 1995, and we have a very stark inflection point where cookies are introduced. And uh, once cookies are introduced in both browsers by 1995, and they enable virtual shopping carts, and overnight the web changes. Amazon.com gets its start in 95 and literally could not have started any earlier. So when I think back to the first single page app, Gmail, introduced in 2004, I don't see that same kind of inflection point. I see apps here and there, usually for a good specific reason, but I don't see the same kind of sea change. I mean, yes and no. Like Gmail was very surprising when it first came out. Like it was impressive. People didn't realize that this was the kind of the thing that could be done. Um, Gmail and also Google Maps, uh, Gmap originally. Absolutely. And the ability to optionally build a, an application on the web is incredibly powerful. But it didn't become the default way in the last 13 years that we build websites. When, and if you remember, Gmail was uh, written with like GWT, right? So you could write Java and then it would produce JavaScript. And like every Java developer is like, oh, thank God, I don't have to write JavaScript. I can keep like writing Java and have these amazing like web apps. And- yeah. And then GW, if you ever, did you ever look at the JavaScript code that a GWT app put out? I think I remember it being pretty terrible. It was pretty terrible. Yeah. That technology for sure has the technology of things that spit out JavaScript uh, has definitely come along. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's interesting though, because there certainly has been, there have been various pushes of people trying to say like single page apps are the way things are going. And there certainly are some very successful things that are written as single page apps. Yeah. Like, is it turn out that that's a more narrow use case than people thought? Or is it that the tooling is still too hard? Like, it seems like... I, I find it introduces a lot of problems that are often go unsolved by the developers. So, like, I don't know if you all use Heroku, but they did a rewrite of their dashboard in Ember uh, maybe about a year or so ago. And, like, the old dashboard was fine, worked great. The new one works fine most of the time. But it gets these weird things where clearly the front-end browser state is, like, messed up. And it starts giving, like, really weird errors because some, like, esoteric network timeout wasn't handled properly. And it's like, you have to reload the whole page. And I'm like, why did this need to be a single-page app? This is just, like, showing me stuff and has buttons. But they may have had other reasons, like... Maybe it's just easier to deal with. Maybe it's easier to manage that code if you're going to have JavaScript. Right. Easier to manage that way. I'm, I'm not really... I mean, I've certainly seen, like, some of the arguments that I've seen, like, they may have their own bandwidth problem, too. Mm. And I've certainly seen the argument that if you're going to support native and native mobile and web, yeah, uh, and you already have something serving data, then it makes sense to treat the browser as another client. Yeah, very true. Because, I mean, for all I know, the back end of the dashboard could be using the same API that the CLI is using, and I could see it total advantages in, in that for them. Yeah, and that's certainly... I guess then the, that does argue, though, that the browser technology may have still have a way to go as, like, a platform for applications, which is certainly not what browsers were originally designed for. Yeah. I think we left uh, what browsers were originally designed for the moment the image tag went in in 93, <laughs> right? But you, you bring up another great point, which is, uh, I think, another sound reason to consider a single-page app is team size. 
because you do have that stark architectural divide between the client and the server. And so if you can afford the tooling cost, uh, the pre-render cost, if you're interested in SEO, potentially the code splitting cost, if your app grows, right? Because with a single page app, you add a new section uh, and suddenly the payload for your entire site increases, right? Whereas if you, on a traditional Rails app, if you add a new section, you know, that initial page load isn't going to change. Yeah. So if you can afford uh, the tooling and, and the overhead, then you've got, once again, like I said, a great architectural seam, and it's perhaps a good place to throw a little bit of Conway's law in there. Yeah. Well, it also lets, if you're at the point where you need specialists, like where I work, we don't tend to have like a front end developer and a back end. Everyone's sort of full stack, but you know, I've certainly been places where like you really do need a front end developer to do some of the stuff that has to happen and allowing them to not have to deal with the rails back end in order to get their work done. Like that does have advantages too. So if they can just start up the front end app only, they could be more effective by not having to deal with all that, the back end stuff. I think for seven months out of my total career, I've had somebody building API endpoints for me. And the whole time, it felt like I was at a spa. <laughs> <laughs> the spa where they give you API endpoints. Right, right. <laughs> I, I just ask for data uh, to build the front end. Okay. <laughs> it was when they asked you to type with cucumbers on your eyes that it got yeah, a little yeah. weird. <laughs> it occurs to me that there's a kind of a, a weird perspective here that we talk about how much complicated single-page apps are. And I think that the issue here is not actually that single-page apps are complicated relative to, like, native apps or other kinds of GUIs. It's that web apps are easy. <laughs> like yes. web HTML markup. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because you've got... Well, you've got your entry point, you've got your sense of place with that URL, right? And you've got a sense of who's browsing with the cookie and whatever's coming in from the persistence engine. And there's not a lot of interaction the user can do either. They can click on right, the thing. Exactly. And that's kind of it. Right. But even at, a, at an even more basic level, and I remember this very clearly when I first started working in HTML, uh, when I was like sort of simultaneously on one half doing HTML and on the other half working in like Java Swing or something like that. Like the way that a web application defines its entire interface in text, basically in code, is tremendously powerful if you are a developer. Yeah. And it's much harder to kind of do that in a native GUI or a, even a single page JavaScript GUI. Like you don't have, in that case, then the framework or whatever is defining your interface in a way that in HTML, you just kind of put it out as text. Right. That makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah, especially around web crawlers. I'm sure the Google team was really sad when they realized that they needed to start executing JavaScript when they were crawling pages, too. Right. A lot of these kind of incidental features that come out of single-page apps, because we expect them to both be kind of GUI apps and to live as native web citizens. So they need to have you know, SEO complications and they need to observe the back button and things like that, that sort of gives them this sort of this double mandate. Dave, like, how do you think that the tooling, having done this book like twice, mm -hmm. like how has the tooling changed and how do you think the tooling for the single page apps is going to change over the next couple of years? It seems like there's this sort of battle between give me lots and lots of single purpose tools and I'll figure out how to put them together versus give me a thing that has everything I need and just works, right? Like, what's an example of each there? 
So, like, React is a good example of the first. It's like a view layer. And if you want to do anything else, like, you're on your own, and there's 20 different ways to do it, and they're all probably pretty good, but you've got to make those decisions. And then, like, on the other end is, like, Ember, which is, like, you will do it this way, and if you do do it this way, everything will work out, and you've got everything you need. And then you don't have to make those decisions, but then, you know, you're constrained by what you, in theory, can do. And so, like, and then Angular is sort of, like, kind of halfway in between, and so it just makes like this, the landscape of tooling, like really hard to know, like what are the good choices and what are the bad choices? And like, it's, I don't know. I, I just found it really difficult to figure out like, what am I quote unquote supposed to be using? Like if I'm a quote unquote good front end developer, like what am I supposed to look at and what do I not pay attention to? It's just, I don't know. I found it really hard to navigate when, you know, things started breaking in rails to try to do this stuff. I feel like the Ember team has almost carved out their own parallel universe <laughs> where they have like their own set of every tool. And yeah. if you happen to have a problem that like fits into their sweet spot, then you're golden. Yeah. The only thing the Ember team requires of you is the entire HTML document. And so long as you give them control over that, then you're fine. The only thing they require of you is unflinching loyalty. <laughs> right, right, right. But I, it's a, I love that framework. But it's a great trade-off, yes, if you give them unflinching loyalty. I think that they've been very smart about how they handle yeah. building a community and carving out what they wanted to do and doing it. Right, like they've well. got a point of view, and like if you're going to buy into Ember, then you've got a clear path, and they kind of tell you, like, all right, this is what you need to do. And that's nice, right? Like if I have a team of developers, I kind of don't want them making a bunch of decisions about which Redux implementation or whatever to use. I'd rather have them just get their work done. Right. And that's, that's like sort of the, uh, not quite, but kind of the rails heritage in the Ember team. Like we're going to make a bunch of decisions for you up front so that you don't have to even think about it, which, yeah. which I don't see any of the other major frameworks really like <laughs> really pick that up. Yeah. It's, I mean, Angular has weird opinions about how to build an application, like the whole dependency injection thing, but they don't have opinions about how to, architect a web application, I guess, if those if that difference makes sense. One of the things that I'm kind of sensitive to, I, so I was reading over the second version of the, the of your book, of the I'm going to get it wrong, it's Rails Angular Postgres Bootstrap. Does it have an acronym? Like, is there some mnemonic I could come up with? That- I wish there were, but they're all pretty terrible, so uh, we have to we have to spell it out. Rap, rapid, barp, they're all bad. <laughs> so Rails Angular Postgres and Bootstrap. One of the things that I look for sometimes in technical books, even my own, is what the author is kind of apologetic for in the text. So like in the Rails test prescriptions, I'm a little apologetic about how much time the first couple tests seem to take. Uh, when you when you describe them, because that's yeah. a big hurdle for people. Right. And in your book, it seems like setup. Oh god, the setup. Yeah. Did that change in the second edition? Perhaps for some reason. Yes. Yeah, so I was used in the first edition. I was able to use Bower to bring everything in, and so you can do Bower, and then the asset pipeline with like one line of configuration like figures it out. And then Angular two, they were not even publishing it on Bower. So I spent a couple of hours with Webpack, Browserify, and. Um, there's another one, Broccoli or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, Webpack was the only one I could get to even function after spending two hours trying to get it to do something. Uh, so I went with that and like it was, uh, yeah, uh, getting all that stuff. Because I mean, basically, like in the second edition, we just abandoned the asset pipeline entirely because it just doesn't work with, with Webpack and all this stuff. I mean, I think the thing in Rails 5.1 is interesting and what they're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Rails 5.1 will have Yarn, which is bundler for JavaScript and Webpack which I don't even know how to describe as default tools. But it's still going to use the asset pipeline for CSS and quote-unquote JavaScript sprinkles. 
Yeah. Which is interesting because it's sort of like there is that nicety, right, with Rails and the asset pipeline where you just dump CSS in and it just works and you kind of don't have to really set anything up for like a really simple case. So I guess they're trying to maintain that use case, but then if you want to do crazier JavaScript stuff, you can use Webpack to get all those modern tools. I'm interested to see how that works in practice. but Yeah, it feels to me like it's a transition of some kind. Yeah. That they're picking up. It seems to me like a relatively rare case of the Rails core team picking something up because the audience is using it more than like the Basecamp core team is using it. Yeah. So at what point... Would it have been easier or harder to set the book up as like one standalone Rails app and one standalone JavaScript app? Yeah, I thought about that. And I think the thing that having them all in the same app really enables is doing a full end-to-end test. Because you can basically say, I'm going to set up all this data using Active Record. I can write my test in Ruby, which is way better than JavaScript in my opinion. But then I can actually execute the front-end app like a user would end-to-end and see how this whole thing works. And that, I mean, you know, we can we can debate the level of end-to-end testing that one should have, but it does seem easier than if I wanted to do an end-to-end test. I'd have to set up two apps and figure out how that works. It just seems like slightly more complex. That was definitely something we were running into at, at uh, Splice was those end-to-end tests. And I was sure missing uh, some of those Rails niceties, right? When Rails... You know, you install database cleaner, you configure it, you reconfigure it after you mess it up the first time, and then suddenly you've, <laughs> you've got feature specs. Yeah, the, the one time that I've done a split project where we had a, a Rails app that was just an API and it was actually Ember, it was more painful than we were expecting, <laughs> uh, which was not the Ember's fault exactly. Right. We, we picked a project that was not necessarily an Ember sweet spot. Uh, which didn't help. And then we didn't quite know how to go about. I think that if we were to do it again, like if we had another project like that, it would go smoother. But the first time you do something like that, where you separate out the server side and the client side into different apps, like you do have all kinds of weird little subtleties that you don't think about, like authentication and, and, and stuff that is surprising. Mm-hmm. And, and once again, at, at table XI, we, we often are operating under tight budgets. So. These might be less of a concern at a product shop with a longer product life cycle. But for us, we, we have to stay lean for our clients. So there's an inflection point where the tooling gets hard, whether or not it's a single page app or not. Like how much can you do before the tooling gets hard? Like how much can you do with the either lightweight framework, frameworkless? Does that save you a lot of setup? Yeah, I don't know. I I was really surprised at the amount of setup just to get Angular two to do Hello World versus Angular one. You could Angular one, you could sort of include this library and throw a tag onto a DOM element, and you could do stuff. And then Angular two, it's like, no, you need to set up all this stuff. And I, I could see that being really off putting for users, and I could totally see why React, which does not seem to have that problem, being more appealing to to people just starting out. I mean, Zach, I've definitely heard you express opinions about Angular 2. So. I'd argue that React has would have the same problem just because of JSX compilation. Yeah, true. So in 2013, I taught myself Angular October 2013. I remember that because it was my first month in Chicago. And it was like this Wizard of Oz, everything in color moment, because I was coming from Backbone. And suddenly, I didn't need to reinvent the world every time I needed to uh, render a collection or reorder 
or remove it. Yeah, suddenly you didn't just have a backbone, you had a whole nervous system. Right, right. But it was amazing. That first moment, it was a script tag. You know, I throw uh, an ng app attribute on an HTML element to scope where I want Angular to look at. And Mm -hmm. at the time, it was Angular 1.2, so it was 36K gzipped versus jQuery at the time, which was 33K gzipped. It was small enough. I didn't didn't even have to ask permission to put it into a project, so I never did. And Angular One is actually what got me on to the idea of uh, the islands of interactivity, where when you've got a mostly server rendered page, you scope a rectangle that's interactive, and you build that out with a powerful framework that can scale. Not that can scale all the way up to a single page app if need be, but it's also small enough to work in an otherwise server rendered page in a small rectangle. Yeah. That, that's exactly what we use Angular one for as well. I like that islands of interactivity. Uh, that's a good way of, of describing it. I was heartbroken by Angular two for so many reasons. Yeah. The, the, the tooling mm-hmm. requirement, the library size. And to me, it, it felt like they were missing the magic of Angular one. Maybe I just write, I wrote Angular one in a weird way. And that's, that's what eventually pushed me. I felt pushed me out of the Angular community. And I ended up using different libraries to achieve the same result. Currently, it's Vue, but it could be anything with similar characteristics to Angular 1. Yeah. So that's Vue, V-U-E.js, mm-hmm. uh, which is the one that Zach often uses for islands of interactivity. Mm-hmm. So is it then that like these frameworks, because I think people make complaints about React getting more and more complicated, and people complain about Angular getting more and more complicated. Is this a larger problem, like that the frameworks start trying to solve the world and they become unwieldy? It could be. I, I to follow on your Angular two thing. I cannot understand why they did that. Any any of that? <laughs> I mean, it like the I don't know what was wrong with with Angular one that they needed to do a complete rewrite and it and it makes all this extra stuff available and it's all this extra complexity that you have to now make a bunch of decisions about like. The mindset, I don't, I don't quite get it. So I'm, I'm not sure. And it seems like this complexity is why there's like so many different tools and frameworks and new ones coming in because each time it's like, Oh, I'll fix the problem with this by rewriting it from scratch or making a new one. And there's no like coalescence on, on some like standard way to do things. In 2012, jQuery hit a 50% share of the web. And, and however you feel about <laughs> jQuery. The idea of a JavaScript library being so popular that they would measure it in share of the web, much less half of it, <laughs> is amazing. And I personally don't think they would have gotten there if they required a build step, right? 80% of the web is still PHP. A lot of those are old PHP um, content management systems. And I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that maybe they don't all have Webpack running. <laughs> <laughs> so... When, when we present a tool, a library specifically with a hard tooling requirement, we are cutting out a large portion of the people that are building websites. So I am not, I, I'm not at the moment like a day to day. I don't use these JavaScript frameworks. I'm not day to day. I'm not building single page apps day to day at the moment. I have in the past. I probably will in the future. And what's, it's the, that, the, the level of churn and like ongoing complexity and meta complexity in those tool chains, like 
is really off-putting to me. Like I, I don't see a way to like keep my skill set in going because six months later, even by the like accelerated scale of web stuff, it seems like this stuff is still changing and getting complicated. At the same time, like I was recently at uh, the CodeMash conference, which has changed tremendously since the time I was there three years ago when JavaScript was like an afterthought among all of these more enterprisey C-sharp and Java programmers. And now, three years later, there's a much more sense of JavaScript being the commonality that no matter what your server-side tool of choice is, you have to deal with JavaScript in some way. And that's always been true. It just seems like a lot a lot of people are like more realizing it in a more serious way now. And I don't know how that stuff kind of plays together, but it does feel like there's a tremendous opportunity for somebody to try and bring stability to this. I don't know how you would even do that. Well, I wonder if that contributes to the instability. If you think about the mindset of a PHP developer, a Rails developer, a Java developer, like the way they would set up just a build pipeline would be totally different, right? The Rails developer wants it to just work. The Java developer wants something like super complex. And then meanwhile, this, the C developer is like, we had make 30 years ago, <laughs> you know? So I, uh, yeah. And it's, for me, it's, it's like watching like things be recreated in a form that's like, I don't want to type it in this form. I want to type it in this. I want to make it in JSON. So I'm going to re- rebuild this concept. Like it's really, I struggle, I struggle with that. I, I don't want to be the old gray beard who's like, oh, I just use make, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> to be clear, don't use make. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tremendously powerful and ridiculously complicated tool. My current philosophy is to try to avoid writing enough JavaScript where I need tooling. That's my current philosophy. Okay. So how do you how do you do that? So so I try to use uh, libraries that are compatible with a script tag, basically, which by definition means that they're compatible with just about any build system that I'm using. Right now that happens to be the asset pipeline. Because if I have a problem with the asset pipeline, I can fix it by going to Stack Overflow. And everybody else <laughs> using Rails here can do the same thing. And, I, and once again, trying to use very well-structured JavaScript in minimal quantities yeah, for the most important parts of the app that require interactivity and where that link and navigate traditional web UI just won't suffice. And and it's painful because I love writing JavaScript. I feel like one of the problems with the asset pipeline is that the development basically stopped on it for like six months to a year. Mm. And and I feel like it's still kind of catching up. There's a new version. The 4.0 version's been in beta for a really long time, and I don't think it's gone final, uh, which addresses some of the longstanding problems, but not all of them. I just wonder how much of it is like based on it's sort of like it's like this amazingly designed thing for the world of JavaScript where you just concatenate everything together in global namespace. Right. And like if you don't want to work that way, it seems like that's where it like really struggles. Yeah, I think that the, I mean I agree with that, and I don't know where it goes. I, we we've talked about abandoning it for our projects here and haven't really pulled the trigger on it for any serious project yet. But we haven't also haven't done something that has required the kind of JavaScript tooling. Um, that would push us towards Webpack or something like that. So in our case, that's kind of a, 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 I don't know, chicken and an egg, which comes last. What's the opposite of a chicken and egg argument? (laughs) 
Kick the can down the road. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. That just means you get the latest and, and greatest thing whenever you decide and you're not stuck on Webpack like the rest of us. Yeah, but it's only the latest and greatest thing for like a week and a half. <laughs> right. And then it's like, oh, that is so too, like, it is so April. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think it's common for people to underestimate how much time it takes to set up tooling. And, and so if I pick up Webpack really quickly and get it all set up in three days or less in a way that works in both test and prod as well, then that's three days I spent not building a feature for, for a client. Right. Cause yeah, cause at least in the consulting world, the client is never coming to you and going, what we really want is an efficient JavaScript build process. Right. They, they, <laughs> yeah. The user doesn't care what build process I'm using. It's just, you know, it's just so long as the web page is, uh, their, the web app is performing in a reasonable manner. So that's why I personally have a, a hard time investing in tooling for a given project is opportunity cost. So Dave, do you still reach for Angular for the kind of, for single page? Yeah. I mean, we're actually having this discussion at work right now. So for the longest time, you know, on my team, you know, it was like, okay, if you are making a, a UI and it is not like because a lot of our tools are like for people in a warehouse, so they are, they're a little interactive, but they're also very simple. So we would just go for Angular because we had, you know, we had the the knowledge share and, and a lot of code, and that was all fine. But now it seems like going for Angular one seems like a bad idea at this point. And so because Angular two is completely different, now the entire team is like, well, should we use React? Should we use Ember? Should we use Vue? Like we're having this discussion now and and trying to figure out like what is the right answer there because. We've got a little bit of React, and it's like the developers there are like, yeah, it's not the greatest, but it's got these pros and these cons. And, you know, we've got one Angular 2 app, and it's the same deal. So there's no, like, obvious solution because we don't have any sort of momentum behind any one thing. So I don't know what we're going to end up with. So I built a little app with Vue, and I found out that all the things that I thought were really cool about it were deprecated in the next version. Like I, <laughs> So I'm clearly, like, either I'm not the target audience or, like... <laughs> this persistent JavaScript framework community management problem that they find yeah. stuff that people like about the frameworks and like strip I it away. I do wonder how many of them, like you can see the logic in the way DHH created rails, which is like, I got a thing working for a real use case. And then I turned that into something generic based on my actual experience. And I don't know if that's true for a lot of these frameworks. Like angular definitely seems like something that someone sat down and was like, well, this is how you should write a framework. And then we'll worry about like how it actually works to build an app. Like, you know, once we've got this perfect thing created and I don't know, like, I, I don't know if any of these frameworks are done the DHH way and have more longevity and have better designs because of it or not. I'm kind of curious about that. I think angular one was born out of quick prototyping, if I remember mm. correctly, and then kind of grew the way that you describe, but I believe yeah. the very first versions were just people just trying to get something on the page very quickly. The interesting thing about that is while I have had several people, including both of you, uh, say, like, I fell in love with Angular 1 because I could do a thing really fast, I have not – maybe I'm just – again, maybe I'm just not talking to the right people. I, I've heard a lot of people say, like, oh, yeah, Angular 2 is very different. I have yet to hear, like, an actual, like, line developer come up to me and go, yep, I really love what they did with Angular 2. Yeah. I, I mean – I'm sure it's really good for what they're trying to do. I'm not trying to, to, I'm, I'm, I'm criticizing them from a community management perspective more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, the component based way of designing, I think makes a lot of sense. And so I understand that they wanted to go there and that's, you know, what react is, is doing as well. Are they targeting bigger projects? 
I guess so. Cause I mean, th- that way, I mean, I'm sure you've worked on a horrible Java project with Spring, but I like have. the dependency injection thing, like for all of its foibles, like I-, I do see the logic in there and it's like working on a giant code base that uses that everywhere. Like it, it does simplify some things. So I can see why, why they might think that. And I could see if I had like just oodles of JavaScript, then that might make it uh, more manageable. But it doesn't feel like that Islands of Interactivity thing. It doesn't feel like it's well-suited for that anymore. Islands of Interactivity versus oodles yeah. of JavaScript versus sprinkles <laughs> of JavaScript. Yeah. Versus, yeah, I mean, like like the Rails community management has its issues, but I have come to respect it a little bit more over the last few years seeing other projects kind of stumble with the stuff that Rails actually manages pretty well. Yeah. And that's an odd feeling for me, actually. <laughs> I, there's this long history between Rails and JavaScript of uh, Rails programmers like trying to avoid writing JavaScript, yeah, uh, with various and sundry mechanisms and tooling, and it's going to be interesting to see how Rails and Webpack like work together. Yeah, well, the the testing thing too is interesting because like Rails was always like, okay, we're going to give you this super complicated DSL that does all this stuff, but there's a way to test it really easily too, so don't freak out. And like, you don't get any of that with JavaScript or the asset pipeline. It's like, if you want to test it, I guess you're spinning up a browser and clicking because there's no way to do it. And so that's, I'm curious, Zach, about how you unit test if you're trying to keep like tools minimal. Mm -hmm. Like, how does that work? How does that work for you for like testing? Sure, sure. I use the uh, the Jasmine Rails gem, um, yeah. mo- mainly because uh, Justin Searles hates maintaining it, and so I try to point <laughs> as many people towards it as possible to control him. I used to, he used to be my boss, great guy, I love him, and and then it's essentially just test as if I were testing Angular components. I I, I find I that my front end unit tests in general, regardless of tooling, are fairly low value just because they're so close to the edge of everything. Yeah. And, and I love isolated unit tests. I love being able to t- test drive my code if I'm in that kind of situation. And, and the moment that I realize that whatever, uh, I feel the need to extract and test drive a plain old JavaScript class or object, then it's time <laughs> to push that logic back to the server. And so that way the logic has a URL. It was a little heartbreaking. (laughs) So minimally, but it's quite possible. It's just a matter of managing uh, which files are loaded in which circumstance. Yeah, that was always uh, kind of tricky and still tricky. If the logic of your system is not in the client, then it's hard to come up with really high-value JavaScript unit tests. But if you're using a framework and you have more of the logic on the client side, then you get tied up into the, the how hard it is to write tests against the framework, which can be, you know, not all of the frameworks have really dedicated themselves to making testing. Yeah, you know, Angular 1 had a really good story there, and Angular 2, like, I could not figure out how to get it to, you know, test certain things. And I ended up using test double, uh, Justin Cyril's, uh, oh, yeah, JavaScript yeah. thing. And because it was super easy and because of Angular's like whole, you know, all in on DI, like I could do it and I got it working, but it's not, it, there's definitely parts where I'm like, Angular really should have made this easier for me to test. 
but I just could not figure out like if, if they hadn't done it yet, if they just hadn't documented it, if it was in a way that made no sense to me, like, yeah, that was, um, that was a little challenging. There was one other thing that I wanted to talk about before we wrapped up, which is Angular 2 also like prioritizes TypeScript. It's written in TypeScript and it kind of prefers uh, Angular apps to be written in TypeScript. So TypeScript is a superset of JavaScript that allows for static typing and optional type inference and, and a couple of things like that. In, in the book, you explicitly don't do TypeScript for reasons that I think are perfectly reasonable within the context of the book. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about different versions of JavaScript, ES6 versus ES5, or TypeScript, or... Yeah, it kind of comes back to that whole tooling and, and how much barrier you're going to put in front of a user. Like, I can't even imagine how much longer the setup section would have to be if I had, had to get TypeScript set up, because I'm assuming it would have been a huge pain. Um, to maintain, but, uh, so yeah, so that, I don't know. I, I feel like Angular 2 being a rewrite and you have to learn this new thing and set up this other tool. Like, ugh, that's a lot to, to take on. So in writing the stuff in just plain old ES5, like I didn't feel like it was that much more verbose than the TypeScript version. And I guess that the type, the static typing might, you know, might be nice when you get really complex, but I was also all in on CoffeeScript for a while. And now I'm like, it's kind of nice. It's writing ES5 and it just kind of works in the browser and I don't have to like worry about it. I, I, I like to call it JavaScript <laughs> because it is the one that runs in the browser, right? Yeah. I was also all in on CoffeeScript and there it has a couple of syntax features that I still miss in other languages. Yeah. I, I actually, if I was doing it, on my own, I would use probably ES6. Um, have either of you guys tried Elm? I did a little bit, enough to know that it was very weird and I needed more time to, to dig into it. But So Elm is a very functional front-end language. Uh, that's a, its own language, really, that, that compiles down to JavaScript, but it's, it's very Haskell-like, yeah. functional, no side effects language. Zach, have you tried it? I'm afraid to even look at it. I'm afraid that I'm going to want it too badly. So, yeah. I, I, I poked at it in a little bit. It's certainly interesting. Um, and I know a couple people who have, they're in a situation where they are primarily not JavaScript developers and they're more comfortable with functional programming and they kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. But yeah, there's like, it's, it's sort of weird that this, it's this huge community of JavaScript developers that at the same time is like everybody's common language and yet so fractured by different frameworks and TypeScript and ES6 and ES7 yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I'm tired of typing function, to be honest, but like if I have to type function and it makes my build and life easier, then I'll keep typing function. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they have macros for that. Yeah, macros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'd say, say it's probably the one feature from... By the way, can we give up on ES2015 given it's <laughs> ES2017? <laughs> I know. It's know 2017 that. now. Does anybody still call it that? The only people that call it that are JavaScript people. If you ask the, your standard developer the, what ES6 is, they'll know, and they never, they've never heard of ES2015. Give it up. When they, when they do 2000, uh, 2,109 more versions, they can call it ES2017. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm fine with ES2017 or whatever going forward. It's just rename it regardless. <laughs> I, I miss default parameters are probably the thing that I miss the most. Zach is against time. Oh, sorry. That's what you miss when you're in ES5? When I'm, when I'm, when I'm in JavaScript, yes. As opposed to Babel, which is actually what I, yeah. I mean, I think this, this whole thing is sort of the crux of it. Like there's, Several different names for the same thing, and the community can't even agree. Is it ECMAScript? Is it JavaScript? <laughs> is it 215? ES7? Like, 
that's you know, it, I don't know. It, it is crazy. Yeah. Like, is it? Do you have a problem? Like, I guess you're not really marketing your book to JavaScript developers because you're sort of teaching them JavaScript. But do you have a problem like trying to find JavaScript developers in marketable clumps? Uh, I don't know. We we've been kind of punting on full stack developers who can just do JavaScript and and not you know, not complain about it, but I don't know. We, we do, we are starting to look for front end developers and I, I don't know how that's going to go. Cause I don't know. It's definitely could be a problem. Okay. So, uh, we're, we're sort of at our time here and I just, if you have like one, we kind of like to wrap this up with one resource or tip or, uh, something that somebody can take away today and use to, uh, their benefit. Dave, do you got something? Uh, I mentioned Test Double before. I'll mention it again. Test Double JS. Uh, it is a great mocking library for JavaScript. It makes total sense. It's very easy. It's incredibly well documented. I don't know. I would I would check it out if you're doing some JavaScript testing and like isolation. Justin is definitely obsessive about making it well documented. Yes. <laughs> uh, so that's Test Double JS, which you can find uh, on GitHub. Yep. Uh, Zach, do you have something? Yeah. Yeah. As a developer, don't feel forced into choosing between a single-page app and a non-single-page app on the first day of your era of development. There are infinite points in between when it comes to interactivity. So whenever possible, try to make decisions that don't paint yourself into a corner in the future. And pick whatever level of JavaScript suits your needs today and don't worry about the needs six months down the road quite as much. That's good advice. I wanted to mention one kind of bittersweet thing, which is that uh, you know several years ago I self-published a book called uh, Master Space and Time in JavaScript, which talks a little bit about frameworkless uh, JavaScript and then talks about uh, frameworks that are now terribly out of date. But the part of it that talks about frameworkless JavaScript, which is the the first couple parts of it, actually a lot of it kind of still uh, I think is still good advice, and uh, I have recently made those available for free. Uh, at noelrappin.com, and it talks about testing using Jasmine to test, um, and it talks about uh, mostly jQuery, but but frameworkless little sprinkles of JavaScript. So if you're interested in that, uh, and you can get over the fact that that the code is all a few years out of date and and doesn't even you know Webpack wasn't even a glimmer and a glimmer and a glimmer of somebody's eye at that point. If you can deal with that, um, I still think there's some good advice there. So that's at noelrappin.com, uh, and you can find it from there. So thanks to Zach and Dave, Tech Done Right. You can find us, this podcast, at techdoneright.io, or you can download it via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you'd love to leave us a review at iTunes, that would be great. Um, you can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. The Tech Done Right podcast is brought to you by TableXI, a UX design and software development company in Chicago. TableXI is 35 meticulous and curious minds with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences. Our partners trust us to create innovative solutions that drive their businesses forward. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of the Tech Done Right podcast. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, Zach. Thank Thanks you. for having me.